This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Thanks, Britt. Um, so today our session is called The True Detective and it's the Mark Anzac Masterclass. Um, and what we're looking at is where documentary and genre collide and what documentary filmmakers can learn um, about storytelling from looking at genre films and in particular uh, the detective story, the thriller and, um, and the noir film. Um, so, with with that as our starting off point, um, I wanted to ask you guys: The Jinx, Capturing the Freedmans, uh, Catfish, all are films where there's a mystery that is being unravelled on screen. Um, and I wanted to ask you both: What attracts you to these type of stories? I love mysteries. When I was a kid, I used to read mystery books. I was a big fan of Ross McDonald. I don't know if you guys get Ross McDonald here, but he's a sort of noir mystery writer. Um, I think what attracts me to it is it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's just so engrossing. You get into it, you ask the right, you know, hopefully the author or the, the filmmaker asks the right questions that the audience wants answered, and they chase down the answer. And it's just a, it's a fun ride. And what about you, Zach? I totally agree. I, I, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a, a, like a detective. I feel like this is about as close as I'll ever get. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so uh, you talked about books and what, tell me about the films that have influenced you uh, in terms of genre in your career. Well, we're gonna see one of the major ones, which is Chinatown. Shall we, let's go with Chinatown. Okay. So the Polanski film noir uh, film Chinatown. Um, so yeah, so let's roll clip one, thanks. So why that clip? <laughs> um, that's sort of halfway through Chinatown. It's the point at which the entire, well, the whole first half, you're asking the questions he's asking there. You know, what are the relationships? Um, this guy who was murdered, how did it go down? And the entire structure is to build up questions that are so frustrating that you're basically in his shoes at this point. And I thought it was very brave, the whole physicality of it, the clock ticking. It's very, you know, and I think that, you know, you get enough answers here to sit for the second half of the movie. You know, get all the answers, but you get a big one. But then you have to figure out. Then he's also in this process of raising more questions by her answers. Like, how did that happen? You know, so I think a lot of these stories are about pushing back information. So the audience is chasing that information instead of like, you know, I see so many documentaries, everything's right up front, you know. And what we've been doing for a long time is, kind of pulling the audience through the story by posing questions and pushing back the answers. It does feel like a tightrope in that scene, um, the, the exposition and the withholding. So it's dramatic what you're, what you're seeing, but you, there's still more things to answer. And, and that's what I think so, the jinx and particularly rewatching Catfish on the weekend, if anyone was there, that tension is very present in your films. Yeah. I mean, there's basically a four-act structure that, are, that builds these, these narrative detective stories that I think can, be, that can transfer 
pretty well to almost any story. You know, where you're setting up the characters, you're setting up these conflicts and questions, and then you're answering them at the turn of every act. And the midpoint, the end of the second act, is when you're really turning the story around. And that's what this scene is. And tell me, was this a conscious decision to employ some of these techniques with the jinx? Yeah, of course, sure. Yeah. I mean, this whole idea that we're making this for the, um, you know, we're not Frederick Weissman. We're not making a social documentary that's, you know, whatever social context comes, it comes from the actual people and their story. So obviously people say that the jinx is about the, you know, the justice system and how money can affect justice in the United States. That's true, but that's not what it's about for us. It's about Bob Durst, his trajectory, the people around him, and how he got away with murder, murder three times. And tell me, what, what elements of the genre film did you really want to employ in the jinx? We talked about the um, withholding, but what else inspired you in this, in this particular work? Well, noir cinematography was a big part of it because we were challenged by the idea of doing recreations without uh, doing what you see on like IDTV. I don't know if you guys get that here, but it's a uh, it's an all investigative channel. But there's a lot of really cheesy, awful uh, recreations. Um, we needed to have a visual storytelling that matched the structured storytelling of of the Jinx. So. We were looking for a technique, and noir is a way to sort of hide things from the audience. You know, the classic noir film is, is, is hiding the face of the killer, you know, in the shadows, or keeping things framed in such a way that, you know, you're dealing with deep space and, and people moving away from camera. And we, we did a lot of that. Or throw the, just the feet walking. Or, yeah. Yeah. It feels like this is the perfect lead into our second clip. So let's show this scene from The Jinx, um, which is uh, where we get to understand in, in typical well, archetypal noir form, we've got a flashback of the protagonist, Bob Durst, from his childhood. So second clip, thanks. So this idea of using flashbacks and the unresolved trauma of the past is very is one of those tropes from noir films, um, but I wanted to talk about those the cinematography as the DOP. Mark, talk me through how you how you went through the process of imagining these reenactments. Uh, there was a practical consideration, which was I, I find reenactments in documentaries that show a lot of face and people talking but nothing coming out to be you know, to undermine the credibility of the image, of the whole project. So we talked a lot in the edit room about how to construct um, a visual storytelling that could deliver the sim symbolism that needed to be delivered. It's also big in Noir's family, you know, conflicts and families, and that sort of very high-end symbolism that's very iconic, um, and also could place us in the timeline very quickly because over the six episodes, you know, we're jumping time all the time. So we needed some, some sort of posts for the, for the audience. So they're like, oh, I know what this, I know where I am now. I'm back with the mom at the house or I'm, you know, in Galveston or I'm, you know, in Susan Berman's house, wherever that was. Um, and so it seemed to me that the, the noir techniques would work, which is, you know, largely about, you know, 
creating questions in the visual storytelling. Like, you know, you don't see the emotion on people's faces, so you have to think about what that would be. The pushing into the back of the heads, the pulling out from the back of the heads, it raises what's in that guy's mind, what is he thinking about? You know, with a little boy, you understand he's, he's probably damaged, you know, but later on when Bob's on the bed and gallops and he's just chopped up his neighbor and we're pushing back into him, you're like, what is he thinking now? So these sort of questions are raised in the visual storytelling as well as in the structured storytelling. The, uh, I remember when, when I first put that scene together, the, 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 the falling off the roof scene, um, I did it really linearly. And when Mark saw it, he said, what if we start just with the mom on the roof before we even know what that is? So, so it starts now with that shot of um, just her standing there before you even understand what it is. And it raises a great question. It's very, very smart thing to do. And it has, just in that scene itself, it has a little bit of what he's talking about, where you're like, just a mini question of, oh, where are we? You know, it's like keeping the audience engaged as opposed to like the way I did it the first time, which was super just by the book. Yeah, and the, it creates this curiosity, but also um, just the fact of not showing these faces is that technique of withholding. And the sound, I think, is so interesting in that too, because you're withholding sound in the fall. It, there's, there's the music, of course, but we don't hear anything until the branches, and then suddenly um, we've got a little bit more information. What, and it seems like the, there is a bit of an absence of sound design in a lot of the reenactments. Was that, how did that idea come about? I think that that comes from the idea that we don't want it to feel real to the audience at all. You know, I mean, we're not saying this is what happened. And this, situation we're kind of saying this is what we believe Bob thinks happened you know and for Bob it's a huge thing you know and that's that goes to leaving revealing the mom my, my the actual idea was you know we can't see the mom on the roof until he sees the mom on the roof you know we can get a piece of it so we got the question in our mind but not till he picks that kid up and we come across now we see what this child's seeing and that makes it more from a perspective of the child so when we go to the funeral it's very much about what being in the child's head, you know. Um, so anyway, but that's that's sort of why we pulled the sound out is because we didn't want we didn't we weren't making something and saying wow this is real. We were making something so the audience would immediately recognize it was a recreation. And uh, and tell me what in the process of of putting together your edit and and shooting these, what's the, what was the relationship between conducting these interviews, the enormous amount of research that went into this project, um, and the recreations? The recreations came, came after, but it also came in stages. And I remember we had, you know, we had shot the mom falling off the roof, for example, before we had shot the funeral. Um, so it was a nice opportunity to push into his head and then that sort of ended there, and then the idea came, the next layer of that idea was, oh wow, well when we do the funeral, we should start with on his head and then pull back out, so it'll be this really nice transition. And so it was a constant, that was constantly happening where we were editing and we would, ha we would have the, the edited sequence on set, so we knew kind of what we needed to, to fill, but we were also open to experimenting different versions and different things, and then taking it back and seeing what worked, and, you know. Yeah, there's this thought that, you know, I learned very early on making films and stuff that, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people believe that you get your script, whatever it is, or you're making your documentary, and then you just stop shooting. And you start editing, 
and then you stop editing, and you start sound design and everything else. Um, I think that's not how you can make something good. You've gotta kinda jump those walls all the time. You gotta be shooting, editing at the same time, and then when you need something, you go out and shoot it again, or if you shoot it bad the first time, you reshoot it, and that's more of an organic process. And I think that that's, that's kind of the key to all these projects. All these projects are sort of, you know, jumping from shooting to the interviews, to the research, to the shooting, to the re and reacting in the right way to the material. And what do you think that, as we kind of move broader to these uh, approaches to filmmaking, what do you think that filmmakers, documentary filmmakers, can take from borrowing from uh, different genre traditions and, and looking at uh, narrative storytelling to tell nonfiction stories? Um, there's, you know, there's certainly documentaries that I enjoy that are, that are not based in any sort of classic narrative, Greek narrative, you know, structure. Um, but I think there's a lot of documentaries that would benefit from taking their audience a little more seriously, um, as far as like delivering something that's that's um, that's more entertaining. I know that's sort of a bad word, and sometimes you know I take my hits on that. But there's definitely in my world, there's definitely a desire to create something that's gonna please an audience. I mean, we test these films, you know, so we're not just making it for ourselves or to uh, change climates or to do a historical documentary. We're actually trying to create a story that's gonna, gonna attract a large audience. And um, I think that's the new wave of documentary filmmaking, and I think every tool should be used in the toolbox. And uh, narrative structure in the classic filmmaking sense is just one of the tools. And you see, by the way, it's, it's everywhere. Anything you watch has got it in there. It may be a much more subtle level, level but there's always gonna be at least three acts and there's gonna be these turns and stuff and these questions. But I think we could, a lot of filmmakers could really do with a, a good course in, in just cutting stuff out and trying to move the story along in a, in a more um, narrative sense. You know? And I think that recreations, uh, sound design, music, it's, it's, all, it's all valuable. Um, thinking about uh, that idea also, because we drew upon Chinatown, but then the, the jinx, the way that it's serialized as well, seems like it's been very much influenced by the change in the television landscape in recent years, that Homeland, House of Cards, these, these television series, um, and that feels interesting for documentary storytelling as well, this idea of a serialized um, series, um, which uh, will give cliffhangers and, and compel the audience to come back um, for each episode. Is television an interesting space for documentary filmmakers right now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's one of the best things that's going on right now. Um, it's just, a, it, I think people are excited about digging into stories in, in a way that they haven't necessarily been. And it gives you an opportunity to live in the world for a lot longer and, and raise questions and change people's minds about what they think about characters and keep them along for the ride. Yeah, this, this project is a direct result of watching uh, House of Cards and going wow. to lunch <laughs> and talking about how awesome it was for those filmmakers to be able to kind of go down alleys in episodes that we couldn't figure out how to do in a, in a three-hour movie we were making. And one day we were just at lunch and we were like, well, let's try to do a pilot, see if we can make a series out of this, and it came together like magic. 
Um, there's so much about Bob that was, uh, when lost, just made him into just a guy who killed three people. So the, the feature film version of this felt a little dire. I mean, it's obviously a very dire story, but it felt particularly dire, and it, I felt like I didn't want to watch Bob at all. I didn't understand him. I didn't, you know, all I understood was that there were three murders and there was this evidence and blah, blah, blah. But in this one, and that scene's a good example, and that when we stretched out the story, we were able to go into the, his past, his relationship with his brother, you know, his relationship with his wife on a much deeper level, which is what you see in House of Cards and Homeland. Some of those episodes, they have nothing to do with the trajectory of the main plot of the story. They just go to China for a little while and they spend some time over there. It's kind of great. But it all adds to your understanding of the character. So it, it enriches the world in an amazing way. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's such a, a good lesson, I think, for documentary filmmakers that your influences can come from all these different places, from, you know, classic cinema like Chinatown or tuning into House of Cards, um, and that they can all affect the, the trajectory of your own projects as well. Um, I wanted to talk about this idea um, of the detective in a noir film sort of being uh, a great metaphor for the experience of documentary filmmakers. Because um, the noir character, the noir detective sort of exists outside the law and has to find their own moral codes and their own way of doing things. And, and that seems to be so true to the experience of a doc documentary filmmaker who's trying to uncover their own mystery. Um, and so with that, I wanted us to show the making of from The Jinx, but I'll get you guys to do a little introduction. <coughs> uh, this plate piece is not one that we've released. It's um, going to actually never been seen by anybody except for us. So this is the first time it's going to be seen publicly. Um, it was originally made as a possible next episode, the beginning of a next episode. Um, and it's very much about um, what happened after we found the recording uh, and how we found the recording uh, in the, uh, in the um, in the, uh, in the bathroom, the bathroom recording that Bob, Bob made. Great, so let's just go to this next clips. In the series, we really see Andrew as the detective um, leading that, but what I love about this is we see this team of detectives. Can you guys um, spend a little time just telling us about how this collaboration between all of you worked? <laughs> Andrew was in charge of Bob. He, Andrew and Bob really bonded over their past. They're both wealthy guys from wealthy Jewish New York families who had very overbearing fathers. Andrew's never been shy about talking about it. He's talked about it in the New York Times. And obviously, Bob's never been shy talking about it. So they had this bond. Uh, but Zach and I did all the footwork. It was traveling around, uh, talking to the police, trying to get people to uh, open up as far as witnesses to the murders or friends of the family. Uh, a lot of that was done on the road, uh, Texas, uh, Los Angeles, Northern California, all over the place, just knocking on doors. I mean, nobody who was involved in these events in the past felt like they were treated well. Uh, the, obviously, the families of the victims felt like they had not been treated well, and the police felt like they had been maligned. Um, so nobody really wanted to talk about it. So it took a long time to build trust. And that trust is based on the idea that we will do our best job to find out what the truth is. And, uh, and a lot of those people are very satisfied with the, the series. So Zach, you got to be a detective. I did, I did. And by the end, we, we, had, a, we had a fairly large team of, of really talented 
editors and assistant editors. Because there was a huge amount of information that we were digesting and, and trying to finish six episodes of television in, in a very short amount of time, which was a really, that was really fun. Um, I, I had a, to be honest, I had a great amount of anxiety about the idea of other editors coming on. And um, it, it's such a solitary thing for the most part, editing, you know, him and I in a room for, for, for years arguing about, about this stuff. Um, but it was great in the end to have like a, this team of really smart people. And I think the project really, it, it elevated it to have, to have uh, we would have Monday morning edit, edit meetings and we would just really hash it out. And everybody kind of got a chance to, to talk through what, what they thought. And, and then we were kind of get back in the room and, and make changes and then screen it again, you know. And it was, uh, you know, that was, that was a lot, that was, that was very positive. Yeah, we ran it like a TV show. You know, I was a showrunner, so you're basically, you know, you're doing the wheel, you're going around, you're handing scenes that aren't getting done by one team in a good way, pass it to another team, see what they can do with it, you know. We really, it was, it was a lot of fun. So in that way, you're kind of borrowing from a television model of production yeah. rather than what we, you would traditionally see as a documentary. Yeah, it's the only way to get it done. Yeah. I mean, it's just too much work for one team. I wanted to, the final scene, um, if that was a narrative, totally a drama, then the, the ending would have been the darkest noir film ever. The person who committed three murders secretly confessing in the bathroom and that being in the end. But this is where I think it's fascinating that documentary offers something different because it continues after the life of the film. How does how does it feel that you finished your works of the film, but then it's it's got this whole new life now online everywhere? Well, everything I've done has been like that. Catfish obviously was like that in a pretty large way, and capturing the Freedmans had I think something like twenty articles in the New York Times. Um, I think that's you know these these stories are there's the stakes are so high for people um, that they and particularly you know they talk about it a lot. You know, it just generates a, a conversation. And obviously in this case, when you know, evidence is found of murder and that evidence is handed over to the police, um, there's gonna be a trial and all this other stuff. So I don't know how I feel about it. I, I don't make it thinking that's gonna happen. You know, I, I just do the best job that can be done and then, and then it just happens. And it's a little bit of a burden, to be honest. I'm not looking forward to going to Los Angeles and, and being a witness in a murder trial. It wasn't why I got into filmmaking, mm. you know? But on the other hand, you know, the people who are involved and open themselves up to us in their interviews and opened up old wounds that were, you know, sort of scabbed over for many years uh, deserve the respect of at least everything I can do to, um, to see this all the way through to the end, you know? I think everything, everything changed when he got arrested and we were done with the series when he got arrested. So it was hard, it was very hard to imagine that. I mean, it, it, it kind of seemed like it was going there, but it was such a big machine that it was hard to, it was hard to imagine it running right into real life, which is sort of what happened. So I don't think, that wasn't a part of like the process. It just kind of just happened, happened after. And I was like, you know, I haven't really gone back and watched the whole thing through again, but I, Kind of curious how that um, context would change the 
the, the viewing experience because I think when you know that he's going to be arrested, I'm sure certain things about the, the certain things that people say probably really resonate a lot more. Um, mm. So that, that'll be interesting, but I don't think it would change. I don't think we would make changes based on that, you know. And one of the things in the controversy that um, came afterwards was that you got a lot of flack about the ethics of what you did. And I, I imagine that, that when you've spent so many years on something and it's such a personal project for both of you, that would really sting and you've, you've copped a lot of it. So my question is, what's the most boring question about the ethics that you <laughs> seem to keep getting asked um, over and over again? I was really hoping you were going to read that, Joel Burr. I'm going to read it. Okay. I'm just going <laughs> to... That's this, where we're going. <laughs> Um, well, you know, obviously, there's a lot of suspicion that we are Hollywood guys who did whatever we did because we thought we would make a tremendous amount of money in the entertainment business. Um, I don't think that you can make a successful film thinking that way. Certainly, making a documentary thinking that way is, is insanity. <laughs> so that doesn't really hold any water. Nobody actually thinks they're going to make a documentary and make a lot of money in the entertainment business. Um, the use of the rec recreations and some of the techniques we used as far as structuring the story and using, you know, with the cold opens and the cliffhangers, you know, you know, there's documentary filmmakers out there that understandably are uncomfortable with the level, level of craft that are, that's in this in the sense that it's a craft designed to create an audience and to be a piece of entertainment. But for anybody to stand up who even people are writing books and novels and newspaper articles and say they're not doing that for an audience is, I think, hypocritical. And I was surprised at some filmmakers um, who I know edit the crap out of their films um, came forward and criticized us. And do you want me to read the quote yeah, now? Yeah, go ahead, read Because I feel like otherwise we'll do a switcheroo that you've answered before I give you the quote. <laughs> so this is a quote from Joe Berlinger, another US filmmaker, famous for the Paradise Lost series, some kind of monster, crude. Um, and he described it as a morally interesting time for documentary filmmakers as real life is mirrored to scripted drama. And this is the quote he said, was it on CNN? Is that right? Yeah. Um, there is a murky moral gray zone of what is objective reporting versus what is good for rating. Selective withholding of information for the right dramatic moment, stylized recreations of painful events for the participants, putting ourselves on camera as the crusading investigative reporter. All of these things chip away at the sanctity of journalism. That's a mouthful. Yeah. Um, I edited it down. Yeah. <laughs> Took the good bits, I'm sure. Um, so, you know, I, he retracted that to some extent. Um, he, that was before episode six, I think. Um, you know, if you look at the jinx, I'm not going to make a lot of excuses for this, all right? But if you look at the jinx, <clears throat> the reason why we're in the story, and we're not in the story until we're in the story, until we find that letter. And then we're in the story because we be have become part of the storytelling. And certainly that's a choice, but that's the trajectory we were on. And I'm not so sure that the story could be told without us being in it at that point. Um, so it wasn't like we were all jumping in front of the camera going, shoot me, shoot me. We, we, literally, we would shoot everything, and then one day a guy found a letter, and we were now going to be part of, of this piece of storytelling. But overall, that is such junk, because Berlinger has got to know, when he's been sitting in the edit room on Paradise Lost for how many hours, how many years, that he's made a construction, 
And when he's sitting there thinking, watching it, and he's showing it to people, he's, he's, he's gauging their reaction. So, you know, he's creating, that's a great detective story, Paradise Lost. So there is a structure in there that's very much like this structure here, you know? And I think that that's, you know, to say that, you know, journalists are separate from documentary filmmakers because journalists have to have a purity of soul is also a fallacy. I, met, I, I read a lot of journalism, and some of it is more entertaining than others, and those journalists do much better at their craft than the ones who don't write so well. So they're writing for an audience, too. So, you know, as soon as you accept the fact that, you know, what you're doing is created for an audience, yes, you have to make moral and ethical decisions based on how much you're going to push the material this way or that way, and that's a very personal decision. I think the audience decides that for you. You know, often you find the, you know, people, backlash coming at people who have pushed, pushed the, the, the format too much. You know, the audience can smell it. Um, when they find out it's true, they will punish you. So, you know, just like everything else, it gets all, it gets all washed out. You know, and I don't think the jinx comes under the, under the heading of something that was so manipulative or so over-sensationalized or salacious that it is not journalism. I don't really have much to okay. I was It made me, because where we started with Chinatown, like, you've got the detective there manhandling her, literally. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was an interesting kind of point of inspiration because when I think about your films, there's this, there is this respect for your subjects always, that there is a firmness, but um, there's also a patience in waiting for people, whether it be Angela or Bob, to, you know, reveal revealed the truth in those, those confession moments. So I think that's where you, documentary sits apart, well, your documentary sits apart from those, those um, classic film influences. Well, thank you. But uh, I do feel like, you know, we're, we're, we are telling a story, you know, and a story needs to have a beginning and middle and an end. And, you know, in making a beginning, middle and an end, you're cutting stuff out. So I'm sure when it goes to trial, we'll hear all about what we cut out. Mm, I bet. Um, I think, what time is it now? Um, let's talk about your latest project because we may have changed mediums, but we're still um, in the world of genre. What are you guys working on now? We're working on a podcast about Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, we're sort of tracing the history of this, this city uh, in the no New England of the, the United States. Um, and starting in the mid-60s with a, with a very famous um, gangster, I guess you would say, um, named Raymond Patriarca, and sort of tracing how he corrupted a whole city and how that corruption has continued through, basically through present day. And what do you feel the lessons that you've taken from the jinx or catfish, what are you bringing on to this next project? Well, you know, I think that that's, that sounds like a very sort of helicopter view of a, of a, of a story, but all these stories are sort of told on the ground. So as we're going to play a trailer, right? Yeah, so yeah. That in the trailer, you'll see how the story's told, and it's, it's very much about people and the emotional costs of the decisions they make. Um, it's not about bad guys or good guys. It's not about you know, um, corrupt public officials and good public officials. It's about just people in a situation where they have to make choices, and not all those choices are good. So let's play the trailer for Crime Town. This season on Crime Town. The kid says, you know, Providence has got a code name for you. 
they call you the ghost. I go, what? He goes, yeah, because they can't get you. <laughs> I knew he was bugged. I knew he was wired for sound. And i tell you the truth, I wanted to take him out. It was crime incorporated 24-7 with these guys, and we were on them. Raymond Patriarca reputed New England Mafia kingpin with alleged ties to... It was a real seedy world where all the politicians and gangsters and cops, relationships that go back like tree roots, they're just tangled up together. These things are confidential between me and you. I trust you, you trust me, you know what I mean? My name is uh, Buddy Cianci, and I'm the mayor of Providence. As you know, I've been indicted by federal prosecutors. I assure you that I'm not guilty of these charges. They're based on self-serving statements of criminals who are seeking to save their own skins. Certainly the police thought you did it. You know? What, killed Savoni? Yeah. You went to trial so you could talk about it. It's statutory. Yeah, but I don't think I killed them, though. You don't think so? No, I don't know if I did or not. <laughs> so you had to say goodbye to the visuals there, but sonically, there's some amazing stuff going on. Yeah, it's exciting. How, what do you feel about this new form? I love it. I mean, it's, it's such a great way to tell a story, uh, and it's such a great way to absorb a story because it's passive. When you watch a big screen or a little screen, you're always ha it's a little bit active, it's a passive thing, but you still have to sit in a place and you have to focus on something. But this you can do in your car, you can do on a run. And I, I, I started listening to them a while ago, and obviously This American Life and Radio Lab and things like that, and I was amazed how emotional they are, you know, just hearing people's voices. Um, and it's an incredibly liberating thing not to have to walk into a room with a camera. Although I love cameras, but you know, it's it's amazing how people open up without that camera in the room. So and what's so, it like cutting? It's 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 fun. I mean, it's not without its challenges. I mean, certain things that are really really easy to do in a documentary, like for example, changing voices. You, when you when you're watching a documentary, especially with Talking Heads, you can obviously tell it's not the same person talking. But with audio, it's sometimes a little harder to introduce another voice into it or go back and forth between two voices. Um, and I think it's good for us because it's a sort of new challenges. So it's going to force us to be creative in a, in a new way. And that's what I'm excited about. Yeah. And tell me, when do we expect to be able to listen to it? In the fall. It'll come out in the fall. That's you our know, spring? For yeah, I guess so. Is that <laughs> right? uh, yeah. September, October. Yeah. Right. Spring. The toilet. <laughs> flushes this way or flushes <laughs> this way. Um, but, you know, for young filmmakers, I'll tell you, it's the greatest way to do research for very little money on a subject and create a piece of uh, storytelling that can be upgraded to television or, or to documentaries. You know, it's, it's that little trailer. We did, just on a business level, we did three or four trailers. We went around uh, to, well, Gimlet had originally approached us but then there's other podcast networks, and we, we ended up going to several of them, and it was it was a it was a great experience. You can you you don't have to go out and shoot a, a, a trailer with pictures and all that stuff. You can just do audio, and just focus on the storytelling. Yeah, exactly. All right, we've got a couple of minutes, so I think I might open it up for questions. There should be some roving mics around. Um, oh gosh, yeah, you go for it. <laughs> You want to try to just yell? In, um, if you guys and Andrew had to come across the Freedom Story now in today's environment, do you think that you would have gone down serialised things, types, 
route, or do you think that still would have been a feature film? I might just repeat the question. Yeah. If you guys had found the Friedman story now, do you think it would be a feature doc or you would have gone the serialized TV route? That's a, that's a good question. I, you know, we had a six hour cut of the Friedmans, like everything, you start big and you whittle it down. It would have, you would have shot yourself watching it. So it, unlike Bob, who becomes more interesting the more time you spend with him, the Freedmans do not become more interesting the more time you spend with them. So I think it was probably, it would never have made it through several episodes. There's a lot of really good special features, though, on the DVD if you haven't seen. <laughs> That's true. Anybody else? Yeah. yeah, just up here. Hi. I actually have two questions. Hopefully you can answer those. Um, one is just about your relationship with HBO and when they came on board. And the other question is about your title sequence, which is so kind of mesmerizing and powerful, and the sound that goes with that. It's sort of, you remember that every time, you know, you st still hear it. So I just wanted to ask you how you kind of went about putting that together. Um, well, HBO came on board. This was auctioned as well. So HBO came on board uh, when we had the first episode done and we shopped it around. But we had a relationship with HBO. So they were sort of the default winner because they're extremely good partners. Um, but it, you know, Netflix looked, everybody looked at it and everybody wanted to do, be the broadcaster of the jinx. And in the end of the day, I think HBO is, it, it, it's such an incredibly classy outlet. They're kind of hard to turn away from. Um, on the other thing, you know, there's something that, you know, uh, we made a decision very early on to try to invite a new audience to documentary filmmaking, and that was part of the, the formula of the recreations and structure, and the title sequence was a big decision in that way. Um, we were really trying hard to come up with a way to get those people who see documentaries and turn the TV off to keep the TV on. And the title sequence became an important delivery system in some ways, and, they, and the cold open. I, you know, every episode sort of opens with this crazy cold open that's hard to look away from, and then that title sequence. And it, it really, I think, worked to keep people engaged who would usually walk away from a documentary. Um, that was done by Brent Bonacorso, and uh, I think he did a great job. He's a graphic artist, it's amazing. And I found that song on a MP3 blog, a, a big fan of the Eels, and I just had that on my phone, and I would listen to that, and I was like, oh, this would be a great song if we could find a place to, to put it. And it has that great kick. So, and then when we, it was just like kind of a temp thing that we tried, and then it kind of just stayed. Hi, I've just got a question about duty of care surrounding people that you interviewed. Um, working on a similar project that, and did you have anything in place, especially to do with Susan Berman's son and people you felt, and, and Robert himself, obviously, during the, pro, um, the progress? I'm aware it's kind of each project is individual, but interested to hear what your discussions were surrounding that type of thing. You're asking if we had anything in place. What do you mean? Um, just in terms of how um, they might react to interviews or mentally supporting them. I don't know whether you offered them psychological yeah. support or... Yeah, there's this... Uh, st when we made Capturing the Freedmans, um, Barbara Coppola had seen it. She, you know Barbara Coppola? She's a documentary filmmaker. And she had said, oh, you're, you're going to be with these people and you're, then they'll get out of your life. You'll never see them again. And then 
I was at this function, and Albert Mazels was there. Yeah. And the same question came up, and he said, oh, these people are going to be in your life forever. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and that's been my experience. I mean, I'm still the Freedmans, I'm still close to them. So you make a commitment to these people, uh, even Bob, to some extent. If he yeah, called, sure. I would definitely call him back. Um, and not just because I would want to record the phone call. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I think you make a commitment to these people. You're asking them to do something that's extremely personal. Um, so you have to keep that commitment. Sarab's a really good example because he and I have built a real relationship with Sarab, but he is a roller coaster. Yeah. And, you know, I don't ever send his call to voicemail. Uh, he cut me off for a period of time. He was angry. I can't remember even what it was about, to be honest. Um, and uh, but I made an effort to reinvigorate that relationship, and now we're back in the tent together again. Um, I think it's you know, you know, these stories. They, you know, the stories I've done. The people around it are damaged goods, you know, and they're very vulnerable, and they're very you know, they're very psychologically unbalanced in a lot of ways. So it's it's a little bit of a of a, a commitment that you make, and you stick by it. Thank you. Probably got time for one more question. Just with those kind of recording of phone calls or other scenes like filming the brother when he was getting the award and the security guard outside, maybe it's different in the States to here, but in terms of releases um, and consents, um, yeah, how does that work? And also, when you did come into the film, or that extra episode you just showed us, and obviously you were filming things on the fly, the quality was you know very kind of raw and here i reckon if you put the gave that to the abc or sbs it wouldn't pass the tech check yeah, you know how do the rules there work um well there's uh in the united states there's laws state by state about recording telephone calls um some states are one party states that means one party can consent to a, a recorded telephone call some are two-party states, four-party states, or all-party states, and everybody on the phone call's gotta, gotta say it's okay. Um, but there's another thing called the First Amendment, and if it's a public function, like the one you're talking about, or if the person's a public figure, that's sort of, there's a gray area there about um, whether uh, you know it's filmable. Certainly, Doug, at this function, it's filmable. You know, it's a public function. He has no expectation of privacy. He's standing up on a podium talking to hundreds of people, and we recorded that. You know, there is an expectation of privacy in certain phone calls, but in some states you're allowed to do it. And we, have, we take our First Amendment extremely seriously. Somebody told Zach, I think, that in this country it's very hard, you can't, have a juror, you can't do an interview with a juror after a criminal trial. That, that seems insane to me. You know, I mean, it just seems like the whole process needs to be open and transparent. Now, I'm not saying you should be able to get to him while he's in the jury box, but after it's over, if there's a question about the uh, veracity of the conviction or about how the jurors um, conducted themselves, whether that was you know, morally or ethically right or legally right, there should be an ability for the journalist, who is the you know, watchdog over society more than anybody, every, to be able to go and have, ask the hard questions. And without that, you'd be, I mean, I think that you see over and over in the United States how journalists, more than anybody, they, they end up you know, breaking cases, uh, getting convictions overturned, and they deinstitutionalize institutionalize decisions that have been made for the wrong reasons by the government. So 
Does that answer your question? Yeah, the tech issue. Oh, the tech issue. Yeah, that's a problem. I mean, we do a lot of work to upgrade the material, and but there's limits. So we just signed a piece of paper that says that we're responsible for those limits. You know, I mean, we, we give them a, a pass. But the whole uh, series has sort of a patchwork kind of quality to it. You know, there's, there's archival footage that's very old. There's newspaper headlines. And so I, I kind of like the way that the, the, the sort of raw footage kind of fits in. I think it would be very problematic if we did not have the slick footage to sort of bridge the gap, you know. But. I mean, with the way technology is going now, with smaller and smaller, like catfish, it's they have to widen their specs because you know good material is being collected on cameras that don't have necessarily the bandwidth that the professional cameras have. That doesn't mean the value of the, what's on the on the image is any less. You know, so that's happening in the United States a lot. Okay, I'm gonna wrap us up, but thank you, you guys, for coming out and, and doing this masterclass with us, and thanks, everyone. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.